Welcome to an episode of Weekly Weights. We lift weights and we are mates. On the weekend, we go on dates. Weekly Weights, Jim and Buddy. Weekly Weights with Alex and Will. Welcome to Weekly Weights. This is episode something, I think 40. Um, oh, I'm Will Burke. It is 40? I think so. Yeah, I think so. Um, anyway, I'm Will Berkman. I'm joined by John Paul Kauke, um, my client, my friend. The guy gets a shout out every week that we actually put an episode out. Um, at Five Trong on Instagram, online and in-person coaching extraordinaire, owner of the Strength Fortress Gym, um, Robert Wilkes' love child, and <laughs> former um, junior world champion and owner of, or previous owner of an open, is, do you still own the open world record deadlift in the 66s? Nah, I got smoked a couple of times now. It's like 12 kilos more than I ever did. Oh, okay. Well, previously relevant lifter. Yeah. <laughs> now a mid-rank yeah. 77. <laughs> yeah. um, JP, has what been, I think is a technical term. Yeah, has been. What, what have I forgotten to say about you? Uh, stunning good looks, great charm, all that kind of stuff. Great five foot humor. One. Five foot one, yeah, five foot one of pure muscle. Wider <laughs> um, than I am tall. <laughs> JP's um, joining me in the absence of Alex, and we're going to talk today about differences between coaching sumo and conventional deadlifting. And JP, you'll be thrilled to know that I didn't use the sumo is cheating intro when I was setting this episode up. So, but you, but you should have, because as we all know and are aware of, sumo is indeed cheating. Well, I'm, I'm going to try and approach this episode with an open mind and find out what this sumo business is, what it's good for. You should try to approach this episode with an open stance. That's how you should be <laughs> approaching. <laughs> All right. So, um, so first things first, sumo deadlifting, what is it? <laughs> well, <laughs> it's a deadlift variant. Uh, oh, it's actually a, it's actually a funny question because this is a question that I asked myself when I was first started lifting, and I questioned everything and I didn't know anything. Was that you know how do you define you know the difference between a conventional deadlift and a sumo deadlift? You know, like it's very like say with a stance in a squat or grip in a bench press, it's on a continuum. You know, like close grip bench is like a arbitrary, mid grip bench is arbitrary, and wide grip bench is arbitrary based on like, uh, you know, where you, you find, do. yeah, exactly right. You know, and same thing on a squat, like there's a, a continuum. It's not discrete in the sense of wide stand squat and narrow stand squat. It's just wider and narrower. And whereas in the deadlift, it's kind of like, there is a tipping point, you know, like how much wider should your stance be where it turns into a sumo? Like at what point, you know, and some people even refer to a semi sumo where your stance is quite moderate and your hands are still on the inside of your, of your legs. So I guess, I mean, the, the obvious definition is when your grip is on the inside of your stance and your stance is a little bit wider, but um, there is definitely a continuum and there are, I'd say a few, you know, a fair proportion of lifters who adopt a more <coughs> semi sumo style where their grip is, uh, is, oh, sorry, where their stance isn't very wide at all. It's actually almost conventional, hence the name semi sumo. Yeah. I think we'll get to that when we start talking about training people to do sumo but many people seem to initially find the transition to sumo more comfortable by almost edging their way out from that sort of hybrid stance deadlift into a slightly wider one as they go, or at least in my experience. And so, you know, it's probably a bit like moving your grip out in the bench press. Most people don't go from like, you know, pinky on the ring to like index finger covering the ring overnight. They sort of edge out week by week until suddenly they're doing it. Well, as a bit of a side note, and it's probably not, it's not exactly what we're going to be talking about today, but I almost kind of disagree with that logic. 
Um, I understand what you're saying. It's that if you want to transition from one technique to another, you should do so incrementally over expanded, give, you know, extended period of time so that you're not exposed to a sudden bout of stress. But if you use that same logic to other exercises, then you'll never actually get to do any other exercise. Like for example, oh, I want to start doing incline bench press as an accessory, but before I do incline bench, I better do five degrees of an incline for two weeks and then 10 degrees of an incline and then 15 degrees of an incline and work my way up until I'm at a 45 degree incline. That's kind of stupid because that'll take you forever. The incline bench is a, is a separate exercise and that's the kind of way I see wide grip bench press or, or sumo deadlifts. It's like they're just, a separate, they're just a different exercise. So I actually, like if I want someone to change their grip on a bench press, rather than incrementally widening them, I just widen them to the grip that I want. I go, well, you've spent three years benching with your pinkies on the ring, but now I want you to bench at full width. So let's just do full width. But we'll start at like 50% of your 1RM for three sets of six and then we'll just go up 2.5 or 5 kilos. So the incremental part comes in the loading rather than the actual technique because I treat them as separate exercises. So I guess this is something we'll talk about later, but I treat the sumo deadlift as a separate exercise to the deadlift. They're not, incre- they're not interchangeable. Like if in a program, I don't write deadlift, choose one. You know, they're, they're separate exercises and they should be trained differently. And uh, we'll get to that eventually, but that's just a bit of a side note that I, I think of them as separate things. Well, that's actually, exercises. it's actually a very good segue because the first question I had for you was how different are the movement patterns or the movement demands of a sumo deadlift or a conventional? Um, well, yeah, very different. I treat them as separate, as I said, as separate exercises. They're not, it's not the case of deadlift, whatever. It's choose, you know, it's, you've got to prescribe which deadlift variant you're going to do in the same way that um, you wouldn't just write squat or you could write obviously squat in a program and it's assumed if you're writing the word squat in a program, I guess the client can assume that they're supposed to do their strongest style of squat, which for most people would be low bar with a belt. But um, if you're going to do a squat variant, you would write, you know, high bar squat or front squat or high bar, or, you know, squat with no belt, something along those lines. In the same way, if I wrote deadlift on a program for one of my clients, it's assumed that they're going to do the deadlift variant that they're strongest with. So sumo or conventional, and it's not interchangeable. And if I've got a sumo lifter, and I write conventional deadlift, then yeah, do conventional deadlift. But if it's just deadlift, then you do sumo deadlift because that's your strongest stance. The reason being is that they're, they're separate exercises. They're, they're very different. Um, in the same way, again, yeah, a high bar squat's different to a squat. Very similar and, and they'll, they have obviously very similar mechanical and physical demands, but they are separate. Sure. So I guess when I wrote that question down, the first thing that came to mind was a video that you made a few years ago. And it was called something provocative, like why sumo is better than conventional. And, and you, <laughs> and you had, yeah, massive clickbait title. And you got me because I responded to your video on Facebook saying, fuck you. And also asking for clarification. <laughs> um, but, yeah. but one thing that you pointed out um, was that the sumo deadlift has greater knee extension demands, or at least you can use the quads more in the sumo deadlift than the conventional um, and I think your logic at the time was because the center of mass of the barbell, say you presume it to be in the center of the barbell, um, if you have a greater, I'm going to express this terribly, your knee is more flexed um, and you're extending the knee sort of uh, tangentially to the angle of the bar. And so there is, <laughs> how badly is said is that? And so anyway, there is like, you are able to use knee extension to power the bar off the floor to a greater degree than you would in a conventional deadlift where the knee cap basically doesn't, past the bar by a significant yeah for most of the day the way I, the way i like to kind of conceptualize it for people is you go all right we'll take your conventional stance and if you're doing a conventional stance deadlift we 
for the most part, know that a conventional deadlift is stronger than a stiff leg deadlift. Why? Because in a conventional deadlift, you can bend your knees and you can actually use your knees and your knee extensors, aka your quads, to contribute to the lift. That says that bending your knees is good. So why don't we just bend our knees more and more in a conventional deadlift and use more of our quads to lift more weight? Well, it gets to a point where bending your knees any further actually makes the lift worse because in order for your knees to bend, your shins have to move forward. And in order for your shins to move forward, the bar has to move forward as well to clear space for your shins to move forward. And then the further the bar moves forward, the further the bar is over your toes and the worse it gets. So there's a, there's a tipping point where bending your knees more actually makes it worse. Whereas in, whereas in sumo, that's less the case because when you bend your knees, your knees don't go forward anymore. Your knees go outwards. So you can actually continue to bend your knees more and more and more and get more knee extension without the consequence of pushing the bar forward, which is why sumo is better and it's hence cheating. Um, <laughs> it is cheating. That said though, um, are the hip extension demands similar between the conventionals and sumo? Because if you've done that, then surely the moment about the hip must be smaller. Like you have to apply the same amount of force to move the same amount of mass. So does that then mean the sumo is less demanding on your hamstrings and glutes? Uh, uh, I think you can make a case for it. I think there was a study that showed that, I think Brett Contreras shared it or, or something, that said that uh, glute activation or glute uh, EMG activity was the same in both conventional stance deadlifts and uh, sumo stance deadlifts. So from a glute, from a, like a you know, glute-powered hip extension point of view, I'd say they're quite similar. But the major difference is uh, twofold. One is that when you sumo deadlift, your hips are closer to the bar. Um, so the moment arm between your hips and the load is decreased. So in theory, the loading through your hips will be lower. But two is the fact that your uh, knees are more flexed, as we said before, right? So you're, you're kind of like squatting down to the bar, for, for lack of a better word. So because you're squatting down to the bar, your knees are more flexed. And because your knees are more flexed, your hamstrings are less engaged. Um, you know, your, your hamstrings are, I guess, softer. They're not, a, they're not unstretched. There's less tension through your hamstrings. So it can be harder to put tension through your hamstrings when you're doing a swimmer deadlift. So I guess in, ad, uh, in answer to your question, is there less demand at the hip? Arguably so. But it also heavily depends on like the technique that you use to, to do your sumo deadlift. Um, it's a lift where some lifters will find it more natural and they'll, and they'll experience certain things different to other people, like based on how they're built and their limb length and, and all that types of answer, uh, all those types of factors. Like I've got a lifter right now. Um, shout out Isaac. Shout out Isaac So. What up? From Sydney. Came third, came third at the Junior Nationals in 83. Oh, he, uh, he's... He's been getting like real bad hamstring. Like I think he like, yeah, tore his hamstring essentially doing sumo deadlift. Um, like, a, like a pretty minor one, but one that's kind of stopped him from, from deadlifting. And so we've tried to reintroduce him through, you know, through movements and I've given him RDLs, you know, like this guy deadlifts like 255. But I've given him RDLs like 40 kilos, you know, three sets of 12, slow eccentrics just to stretch the hamstrings and get them moving. No pain. All right, cool. And then eventually over time, we reintroduced sumos. And then even sumos at like 140 started to like hurt his hamstrings again. He's like, dude, I'm scared of going to my hamstring. I'm like, okay. And then he said to me, oh, I did some conventional deadlifts and they didn't hurt my hamstrings at all. I was like, oh, okay, that's really weird. And then six weeks later, he's like conventional deadlifting, almost PR territory, PB territory. But he still can't sumo deadlift. So it's a case of sometimes the common knowledge or the research, you know, says one thing, but the application is different for different people. So while, while I can sit here and tell you that 
you know, the hamstrings are less involved in a sumo deadlift because of science and physics and mechanics. That's not always the case. Well, I don't think we should trust science or physics ever. <laughs> yeah, well, they're clearly, they're clearly all made up. <laughs> yeah, and gov- exactly. Gov- government government organised. Ever since Galileo invented gravity or whatever it was, we're just, it's no, been I think downhill. He, I think Galileo is the guy that said that the earth is flat, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> the, the opposite, yeah. Um, <laughs> no, a question about Isaac, just while we're talking about him. Does he do sumo with a mixed grip? Yeah, yeah. Was it his underhand side that his hamstring was starting to hurt? It's a really good question. Um, off the top of my head, I can't even tell you. Was it high hamstring strain? Yeah, high hamstring, yeah. Okay, I, I bet. Um, shout out Jamie Smith. He'll probably listen and then he can tell us the answer. But that was how probably when I... Listen, man. Oh, I'm going to message it to him and say you better because I'm <laughs> shouting you out. Get, get my downloads up by one. Um, <laughs> it, wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me if that hamstring strain came from the rotation of the hip. So when, when, you, do have, um, when you do have a supinated hand doing the sumo deadlift because the bar is moved away from your body by the thickness of your palm it puts some mm. asymmetrical strain around your hip yeah of and course, it was yeah. um it was on that underhanded arm that i tore my hammy doing a sumo deadlift um yeah. and yeah the reason being because because that hip was placed at greater strain because the bar was moved further away from it so even though mm. you consider it as being not a huge moment about the hip yes. necessarily for the hamstring at the very top it actually is it's a quite separate, um, like there's quite separate moments between the two hips. But I'm exactly speaking right. like it's a dummy perfect, today. It's not, perf- it's not perfectly symmetrical. Like it's not an exact like model. Yeah, it's dynamic yeah. and you, yeah, there, there is that element to it. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, that's interesting. So, so what we've grasped so far is that there are different movement demands. Well, there'll be different technical demands, which we'll get to as well. And the muscular demands may differ, but broadly it's still a hip extension based movement um, where your spine's doing a lot of work to support the weight or your spinal extensors are. Do you think mm-hmm. the more upright torso angle that most sumo deadlifters have reduces the work that the back has to do? Um, not necessarily. Sorry, so we've just had an interruption. Distraction. Yeah, <laughs> minor distraction. Um, okay, so your question is, does being more upright reduce the amount of load to the back? Yes. Oh, sorry, yes. Well, yeah, yeah, that- Definitely is my answer. Sorry, I answered that incorrectly earlier. Yeah, definitely. Like uh, if your torso is more upright, then you're, not only are your hips closer to the bar, but each spinal segment is closer to the bar as well than if you're in a conventional deadlift, especially in the low back. So there's going to be a small moment arm around the low back. So there are a number of cases where a lifter uh, you know, has a back pathology or something and they can't conventional deadlift, but they can sumo deadlift because of the reduced strain on the low back. And you know, using sumo deadlift might be a segue into getting an injured lifter back to deadlifting and then you can eventually reintroduce uh, conventional deadlifts. So yeah, there's definitely reduced load through the low back when you sumo deadlift. But a point on the whole upright torso thing that I want to kind of make is that having an upright torso is not, should not be the objective of someone who's trying to learn the sumo deadlift. So uh, there's, this, uh, there's this cognitive bias. I think it's called survivor, survivor bias or I might be confusing this with something. But survivor bias basically says that the things that survive are the things that you're most exposed to. So you think that that's the way things are, but really you're not accounting for all the for all the things that died in the lead up to the exposure with which you're experiencing something. 
so you express that really badly. But, yeah, really badly. Yeah. yeah, there's a really good there's a really good video on by Veritasium on YouTube about this. So you should go watch it. It's only eight minutes long. But my point is, is that all right? So you go scroll through Instagram, and you only follow good lifters, and good lifters have good genetics, and those good genetics tend to have lift like sumo lifters that are more upright. So then you think, oh, being upright should be my goal. But what you're missing it because of the fact that you're not following all these people is that most sumo deadlifts aren't as upright as what you are mostly exposed to. Like you constantly are bombarded with upright sumo deadlifters and you think that's the way it should be when really your technique on a personal level might not be what you're exposed to because you're just not exposing yourself to it. Does that kind of make sense? So a lot of lifters will try to like be more upright in their sumo deadlift than they're physically able to, or then they're, the proportions will allow them to simply because of what they are exposed to in both social media and, you know, maybe some, some you know, articles they might've read or something that says, Oh, being upright is really good in sumo deadlift, but only up to a certain point, you know, everything's got like a tipping point. It gets to a point where being more upright becomes detrimental. So you shouldn't try to be more upright than you are. You, you're already going to be upright relative to, con- to conventional deadlift. Just that's the way it is. So you don't need to try to do it anymore. So what would be some sort of tells like in technique that somebody is trying to get too upright? Uh, the first thing is like the knees move forward in the bottom position of the deadlift. So like they get into a sumo deadlift position and then if they try to be any more upright and they physically can't, a lot of the times the knees will come in or the knees will move forward or you might even experience a bit of like pinching in your hips because you kind of like sit into your hips more into a position that your hips can't tolerate. Those kind of tend to be the things that say, look, you're trying to be more upright than you need to be. And that's in terms of the actual setup, but in terms of the actual execution, the hips rise before the bar lifts or you get the classic like hip shoot back, you know, as the bar breaks the floor, that says to me straight away that your hips were just too low in the beginning and you should have just had your hips a little higher and you'd be fine. Yeah, sure. All right. Um, what about yourself? So you were telling me just off air before that you actually did your first four powerlifting competitions as a conventional deadlifter, and then you began to experiment with sumo. So what was it that led you to do that? Yeah, well, my first four competitions were all conventional deadlifts. Um, I did a world's conventional and I did an Oceanus conventional. So I was only doing conventional deadlift and I'd never even tried sumo. Like I'd never even uh, done a rep, like not even a single rep of sumo in my first year of competing in powerlifting. And that's kind of something that I like encourage a lot of people to do is to just stick to conventional. As if, if you have no reason to try sumo, just stick to conventional for as long as you can even if you think you'll be better at sumo or even if, you know, for any other reason, just stick to conventional for as long as you can until you kind of hit a breaking point or a plateau. Or of course, if you've got some other reason like injury or something, but I think conventional is a good place to start. Kind of what we said before is that conventional loads your back more, which you want to have a strong back and then squats will load your legs and then bench press will load your upper body. So as a beginner lifter, and you guys have spoken about this before in previous podcasts earlier in your training career, you want to avoid over specialization and you want to, bring up general traits. So I actually think the conventional deadlift is the best deadlift, uh, especially in a bit for a beginner. I can't wait to clip <laughs> that. <laughs> I'm smoking so much. I'm previewing the episode with that. I agree. <laughs> but um, We've yeah, actually said it. that in the podcast though before as well, is that the conventional seems to build the sumo very well. For most Exactly people. right, yeah. yeah. Because, the, because the conventional has like one weakness. It's your back. Like, oh, I, have you ever heard of someone missing a conventional deadlift because their, their cords weren't strong enough or like their glutes weren't strong enough or maybe sometimes on a lockout, but it's almost always like back strength. Whereas your sumo is a, it's a much more balanced 
exercise, much more balanced lift in terms of there's an equal, more equal demand across all muscle groups. But anyway, yeah. back to I actually disagree with that about the conventional. I think a lot of people's weaknesses are exposed hamstrings. by the back. Yeah. yeah, I'm like, you know, my whole thing about the hamstrings, but yeah, you yeah. know, your spinal extensors have to be strong enough to hold position or strong enough to overcome compensations that you make for inability to sort of like maintain, um, maintain your position at the hip. So oftentimes people are rounding their back to reduce hip extension demands and things because yeah, they can't exactly. produce the hamstring the hip extensors are weak. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. But you know, the back is still the part where you're going to see people miss. Like people don't miss a conventional deadlift. Oh, I mean, people miss because they get off the floor and can't keep going, but like they don't, they don't miss a conventional deadlift because I don't know, like, yeah, they literally can't extend the hip. They miss a conventional deadlift because they can't re-extend the back because they've rounded the back to let them extend the hip. Yeah, but exactly. Respect, right, yeah. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway. Um, I just what was I get you back for disagreeing earlier. Yeah, that's fine. Um, <laughs> now we've disagreed with each you're other. The, the sumo, yeah, you're saying the sumo is a more rounded lift. It takes strength across more body parts and it's built well by the conventional, but the deadlift, is, the conventional is simple. Yeah. So for that reason... Yeah, in conventional simple is probably the other kind of main point is that for that point, for that reason, the conventional is a better place to start in your training career. So if you're a beginner lifter and you've done less than two competitions, I'm going to say, yeah, unless you've got a bigger reason to not, I would say do conventional deadlifts as your main deadlift. But, um, but it was after my uh, fourth competition, which was the Oceanias in 2013, and I missed my third attempt deadlift. And it was like terrible, you know, and my back rounded heaps and um, yeah, it was just like a terrible attempt. And my deadlift hadn't really improved that much in that last three to six months in the lead up to that competition. And I thought to myself, well, maybe my back is my weakness and I should pursue sumo for a little while. Um, and yeah, I did sumo for like eight weeks. And I remember at the time, my best deadlift was 230, yeah, 230 conventional. I'd never deadlifted more than 230 conventional. And I did eight weeks of sumo building up. And then at the end of the eight week block, I did 235 for a triple. And I was like, okay, yeah. So this is like way easier <laughs> than, <laughs> than conventional. So then I just stuck to it. Um, yeah. And this kind of like goes on to my point that I, that I want to make that I was going to make later, but I'll make now is that some people are just more built for one of the, for one of the variants, for one of the techniques. Like no matter how hard you try, you might just never be good enough on one technique. Like I trained conventional for three, four, five years consistently, never doing sumo. And then eight weeks of doing sumo, I was better at it. Like by, you know, 5%, 10% already. So where some people don't have that experience, some people are stuck, forever stuck trying to pick one, you know, whichever one they're better at. But for some people, it's a lot clearer. Um, but yeah. Yeah, well, that again is a really good segue because my next question was, which stance tends to suit what types of builds? Like, are there tells when you look at somebody that says they should probably stick to sumo long-term? Yeah, that's a really good question. And when I was first yeah, starting coaching and starting lifting, like I tried to find the secret answer, right? Like I tried to find the, the formula that you can use to say, well, oh, you'll, you know, if you have this length arm relative to your torso, then you might be better with this. Or if you have these general proportions or these general strengths and weaknesses, then you might be better at this stance. But uh, the answer that I've come up with after years of coaching and lifting is that there is no answer. Like there's no way of knowing there's, I think like a good coach, a really experienced coach will have, some intuition, some level of intuition. I'm sure you've experienced that before. You know, you, mm. you've got a lifter, they're doing some squats, they do a bit of deadlift, and you kind of have this sense that like, oh yeah, you'll just be better at this dance or whatever. But there's no real like, yeah, there's no formula you can use. The best way to find out is to just do them, like to just do both. Which one feels better? Which one feels more natural? Which one feels stronger? 
which one has less pain, you know, and you got to factor in all these decisions uh, when it comes to deciding which one you're going to compete with and which one you're going to pursue more heavily. Um, there are a number of factors that you need to consider. Like it's not as simple as which one you lift more with, you know, if you deadlift 200 with conventional and then 210 with sumo, it can be easy to say, oh, well, my best is 210 with sumo. So I'm better at sumo. So I'm just going to do that. But that might come at a cost, you know, like sumo might just blow up your hips and then you can't squat as well because your hips are sore from sumo deadlifting. So then your squat goes backwards. Your sumo doesn't improve much because it hurts all the time. And then you just never progress where you might've just been better off doing your weaker technique, but you can train it better and then you can improve everything, you know? So it's not as simple as which one's stronger. A lot of the time it's do a bit of both, which one, you know, factor in all these things such as uh, comfort, ability to train, recoverability from the exercise, blah, 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 as well as your top end strength. And then from there, you can kind of decide what you're going to do. Yeah, I think in addition to just assessing somebody's build. So there's one, I should say, there's one trait that I've noticed in a couple of my lifters that has meant that they were just always shit at conventional and could sumo more comfortably. And that was, I've got a couple of people, um, both Asian, who have really short femurs, both proportional to their torso and to their lower leg. And so they like, I got this guy, he's got shins that are literally... I don't know. I'm looking at mine. As long as he's yeah, as long. probably longer. Like they're well, probably not, but like they're absurdly long. Yeah. yeah and when yeah. he goes to do a conventional, he has to be basically stiff legging it because otherwise his knee is just so far in front yeah. of the bar and his shin gets in the way every time. So he can, he can sumo actually reasonably well because his shin doesn't go forward, which is like what you were saying earlier. Um, and then I've got another person who's the same, but to a less extreme degree where it's just like really long shins, can't get to the bar without either stiff legging it or having their knee get in the way and sumo just gets them down more comfortably. But other than that, I haven't sort of observed something where it's been like a torso length issue all the time or a femur length issue all the time. Yeah. It's just that. Like I remember one, one piece that I read years ago said that uh, some of the short arms or, or a long torso or both will be better at sumo because uh, you know, those traits are kind of considered not so good for uh, deadlifting in general and doing sumo will re reduce the stroke. Um, but, uh, you know, as we said before, off air, actually, it's not always about reducing stroke or reducing range of motion. And, you know, there are countless examples of people with short arms that are just better at conventional, and there are countless examples of people with long arms and short torsos that are just better at sumo or the other way around. Like, there's, there just no, seems to be no pattern a lot of the time. A lot of the time, it's just a bit of, yeah, yeah, everywhere sometimes. I also think that logic's really poor because if your arms were really short and your torso was quite long, you would have to have a compromised or not compromised. Like you'd have to start your sumo extremely low anyway. And exactly, like, it's yeah. not, you know, it's not necessarily the case that you're going to get a really upright torso angle and reduce the disadvantage of having a long torso by doing a sumo. If your arms are so short, you can't get to the bar without bending over heaps anyway. Like it's just, mm. yeah. Like yeah, exactly. Said, no it's equally as bad for both. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're basically just in trouble, but you'll be good at bench. Um, so <laughs> yeah, basically, yeah. um, but yeah, but sorry, what I was going to say just before was beyond just the, the actual build restrictions, um, you also actually need to have adequate mobility in a number of joints, um, particularly for sumo deadlifting. And so I, I wanted to ask you whether you think like hip rotation, um, rotation range of motion and adductor strength and length are, are really important for getting somebody good at sumo and how you could sort of improve that if you need to for sumo deadlifting. Yeah, no, that's a good question. And that kind of ties into what I said before about these are the types of factors that you need to consider. Like for some people, 
sumo deadlifting comes so naturally that there is no work that needs to be done. Like, you know, one question I get all the time, excuse me. One question I get a lot is, you know, on like uh, Instagram or whatever, or YouTube is JP, can you make a video of your warm up routine or JP, can you explain like what exercise you've done to, to get your knees out so much in a squat? And the answer is nothing. I do nothing. I do no warming up for deadlifts, like for sumo deadlifts. Like I literally, <laughs> yeah, like, I wish you'd warm up more for squats. Sorry. But yeah, well, I, I do now, but uh, oh, I like, good. I crack my back, I crack my back and I do like some core activation shit, whatever, but I don't do anything specific for my hips. Like I don't need to do any hip openers or, you know, Kelly's threat, like in like super crazy hip things or anything like that. Right. The, the turning out of my hips, like the external rotation, the abduction of my hips for me is very natural and it comes very naturally to some people, you know, like, you know, I think of guys like Christoph Uzbeki or, um, you know, like I've got a number of lifters that I coach for them. It's just the same thing. And they just kind of start sumo deadlifting, their knees are out, their shins are vertical. And then they deadlift like heaps more than when they do conventional. Like it's, it's phenomenal. Whereas for a lot of lifters, it takes a bit of work to kind of get yourself into that position to, to push your knees out and stuff. So that's kind of related to, uh, you know, like bony structure is a big one, you know, like the way that your, uh, your femur sits in your, in your hip joint. You know, if, if some people have like an antiverted hip, it's going to be a lot harder for them to put their knees out. So for those people, you know, this is, that's kind of actually who I had in mind earlier when I said that for those kind of people doing a sumo might be stronger for whatever reason, but it just might hurt the hips. So it might not be for them. And you can do so all the stretching in the world. I should interrupt and say, JP, you have a, it's a bachelor's in human movement. Um, majoring oh, in anatomy. Bachelor, yeah. Bachelor of science, just a general science degree, but majored in yeah, anatomy, yeah. physiology. Um, anyway, so for that reason, he has a reasonable grasp of anatomy, but do you mind actually explaining what antiversion and retroversion and stuff of the hip means and just explain that in more depth? Yeah. The easiest way to kind of conceptualize it, like just for like for layman's terms is, if you were like floating in space and there was no external resistance, like there's no gravity, there's no like whatever. And you let you just yourself relax into a position that was like the most relaxed position you can be in the, the direction with which your essentially hip points, you know, will be different for different people. Like just like the bony structure in your face is different to the bony structure in the person next to you's face, which is why you look different. Similarly, the bony structure in your hip will be different to the bony structure in the person next to you's hip. So one person's hip might just point more forwards where another person's hip might point more laterally, more outwards. So if your hips point outwards naturally, then it doesn't take much work to bring your legs out because your hips are already pointing in the, that direction. It's almost like that's where they want to be anyway. Whereas if your hips kind of point more square, like if your hip joint, when I say hips, I'm not talking about your pelvis. I'm talking about you know, where your femur, where your leg comes into your pelvis. If your hip joints essentially point forward, then turning your legs outwards is going to be pushing them towards the ends of their range of motion. So if someone's got, you know, hip joints that point outwards, then a sumo stance, like, uh, you know, like me, for example, is very natural. I just like widen my <coughs> stance. There is no strain on my ability to achieve this position. And then I can just do my deadlifts from there. It's really, really quite simple. So there are a number of people that, that kind of have that, you know, like a, a good example is like, yeah, my, myself, uh, you know, I look at guys like a guy like Aiden Potts, you know, who Alex coaches, man, when he started doing sumo, it was just so natural for him. Like he just took his wide stance. Uh, I suspect he didn't, he doesn't need to do a lot of mobility. He just kind of stands wide and it's really easy. Whereas a good example of the opposite of that is someone like say Brett Gibbs. Like I took him through a couple of sumo sessions in person and he just can't do it. Like he takes his stance wide and it just is shit. Like it's just crap. And there's no <laughs> shout amount out, of Brett. <laughs> shout out, shout out Brett. 
there's no amount of like hip openers or flexion flexibility things he can do in order to achieve the same, I guess, looking, you know, the same looking style of deadlift as someone like me or Aiden, you know, it's just, it's just, ne- it's just never going to happen. So um, in terms of like, like don't get me wrong, stretching and mobilizing and all that kind of stuff will increase your range of motion, but only up to a certain point. Like if you, if you, if you require X amount of, mobility and you have x minus 10 mobility and then you do five units of flexibility improvements you're still not at x like you're still not there and you might never be able to get to the you know required prerequisite amount of mobility to do the deadlift you just Whereas lost every inuit listener yeah. just doing algebra <laughs> yeah. on a piece of paper in front of them <laughs> like fuck it's x minus five just this is just how it all comes in my head and i can't figure out a better way to explain it no it's I'm sick sorry, if you're not getting it just get a number line put x in the middle <laughs> And then just draw like, like negative 10 through to X and then positive 10. Can borrow the abacus that's in your room? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was, gonna, I was actually going to say, if you're not getting it, then go get an education and it might make it easier to communicate with people. <laughs> I can tell you. <laughs> you're a dickhead. Um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But no, that makes sense. So if you, have, if you have a mobility restriction and you can't overcome it simply through stretching, then you won't overcome it. Basically. Exactly right. Yeah. Like there's only up, you know, if you're close, like you go, oh man, I can almost get into a really good position. If I do a little bit of this warming up, then it feels better and I can do it. Then good. Just, you're just going to have to spend 10 minutes warming up every time you deadlift, which can be a bit of a pain in the ass in itself. But for some people, it's just really natural. And there are lots of, lots of those types of examples that just kind of open up their stance and ease point out and it's easy. Do you reckon that um, just based on like hip morphology that people squat stance and deadlift stances mirror each other to any great degree? Not at all. Like no way. Like so clearly no. And why do you think that? That was extremely emphatic. And I agree, yeah, I but I want to know why. Yeah, so like uh, some people will make the argument, oh, you know, this person squats with a wide stance better. They're probably going to be better with a sumo deadlift. And similarly, oh, someone deadlifts with a narrow stance. They're, gonna, they're probably going to be better with a, you know, conventional deadlift. But there are just innumerable, like innumerable cases of lifters that just have complete contrasting style. One that comes to my mind, Immediately is uh, this USAPL lifter, um, Matthew Aramoni. Aramoni. I don't know how to pronounce his name. I'm sorry. On Instagram, he's snur59, or he might be snur66, S-N-U-R-R. And is, are you familiar with him, Will? No. What's snur mean? I don't know. It's like some, probably some meme thing. He's some, some Asian dude in America, but he's a fucking weapon. And at 66 kilos, his he squat is like 225, 230. Okay, and wow. it's narrow, it's narrow as shit balls, like no heels. And he's like pretty much standing. His squat stance is basically what you would be standing at if you were trying to stand tall and straight. It's like Marissa Maybe. Indo squat. Yeah, it's like a Marissa Indo style squat. Yeah, if you're more familiar yeah. with Marissa Indo, that's our squat. But he has like mega wide stance sumo deadlift. And he's deadlift, he deadlifted 317 and a half with straps on a stiff bar. At stiff 66? At 60, or in training, yeah, in the gym. Right. With, obviously with straps, you're not using straps in competition. But like yeah, but a bar... Yeah, Alika Bar, calibrated plates, 317.5 at 66 with wide stance, toes to plates. You know, but his squat stance is mega narrow and it's also elite. You know, two, 225 kilo squat, 500 pound squat at you know, 67 kilos or whatever. I mean, that's just one example. And I don't like using you know, N equals one as proving a point. But that's just you know, one example. But it's and a counter example like, to that archetype where it's like if you're good at one, you'll probably be good at the other. You know? Exactly right. Yeah, it's like the, what's that? What's that? logic uh, there's a like there's a fallacy logic where it's like oh if you see a all, all swans are white until you see a black swan or something it's kind of like that thing you know it's like i don't know does that if a tree falls in the forest um 
I don't know. <laughs> anyway, but the point is, there, yeah. there are many of those. There are many of those examples. You know, where it's it's funny you use Marissa Exim. Indra as an example because you can use her for the counter counter argument. Well, she's a wide, a narrow stance squat, and she does a narrow stance conventional deadlift. So, mm. I mean, like that obviously comes up sometimes. But for the most part, yeah, there's almost. I'm not, I don't want to say no uh, correlation. But there's very little, I, I, I'd argue there's very little correlation between your squat stance and your, and your deadlift stance. Um, yeah, okay. Well, more or less agree. Um, what about, here's a question taking us back to muscular demands. Is the sumo deadlift harder on the adductors? Like in terms of actual movement? Yeah, this, that's a really good question. So the adductors are the muscles on the inside of your leg. And they bring your knees together. So think good girl, bad girl. It's like the good girl part of good girl, bad girl. Mm. So when you like kind of draw a sumo deadlift, like a stick figure sumo deadlift, when you compare the bottom position of the sumo deadlift and the standing position of the sumo deadlift, your legs have kind of come inwards in a weird way. Like your legs started out and then they finish on a more acute angle. So in some respects, your adductors are involved in doing that. But from a more practical point of view, I don't think I've experienced much uh, adductor like I guess contribution to the lift like I don't know how important it is to have well-developed adductors in your sumo deadlift mm. what I will say is that kind of going back to what we said before you do need like a prerequisite amount of mobility so if you've got like tight or shortened adductors or adductors that aren't strong at length or at least a little bit strong like they don't need to be like super strong but they need to be like just have enough strength at length then you might have a bit of trouble with it and you might get some adductor issues but I don't think you need to have like I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't think that adductor weakness would ever be like something that would hold you back from progressing your sumo deadlift. I don't think anyone would ever do a deadlift and be like, man, if my adductors were a bit stronger, I'd sumo like way more. I think it's more just a case of you need to have a prerequisite amount of length, you know, accessible length in your adductor and a prerequisite amount of strength. But once you've got that, you can kind of just deadlift infinitely cool. and yeah. And quite well, I don't, I don't know how important it is to strengthen your adductors. Sure. Um, Bringing you back to another point that you made earlier, you were you gave the example of the sumo deadlifter who's a little bit stronger that way, but it flares their hips up and they can't train it as much and it sort of has a net negative effect on their whole training. Um, there are some people who will make the argument that the sumo is a preferable deadlift because it's less taxing on the back. And so, you know, they say they can train it more frequently or with more volume. And people often attribute that thought to Russian coaches, whether or not it's true. Um, do you think that that ever is the case that sumo has that advantage? Um, well, this is a very, I've got a very loaded thought process to this. So hear me out. Go on. Contra uh, controversy is good for us. So not so much controversy, but all right, so you, what you've just said is that the sumo deadlift is less physically demanding than the conventional deadlift. So for that reason, is it possible that sumo is preferable in that sense? Whether or not that's true is, is not the point, but let's just assume mm. it's true for a moment. The point of training, like the objective of a training session is to cause physical disruption, like homeostatic disruption mm. to the system, you know, stress in order for you to progress. So almost using the same logic backwards, if you go, well, the conventional deadlift is more stressful. So maybe doing conventional deadlift is better because it's going to cause more stress. So you're going to get a better training effect. Like if a sumo deadlift is easier and less stressful, then by definition, it's less productive. Like you want to induce stress. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, it kind of makes sense. Although, the, well, the counter argument to that is that you, it's not just that you want stress to make you get better, right? The, the whole point is that you have targeted stress 
because yeah. targeted stress induces the adaptation or else like if you want a muscular stress you just beat yourself with a bat and then yeah, you'd of have lots of contusion yeah. and you'd grow um and so so although you might need a slightly greater dose of an exercise for the same amount of stress if an exercise allows you to target that stress in a way that's more productive then it might be a better investment of your time even if from like a time spent standpoint it might um it might take slightly more and so i don't think um, I don't think that sort of looking at systemic stress as a proxy for adaptation specifically to an exercise is a good idea because if you say like the conventional deadlift is more systemically stressful, but like it still only puts X units of stress in the things we actually want to develop, say yeah, yeah, extensors yeah. and back, um, but it's got all this extra stress because of X, Y, and Z. I don't that's think that's an yeah. yeah, I don't think that's an advantage for it. I think. I think that means that you're getting the same amount of targeted stress with the excess less targeted stress. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to think of it. I, 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 don't, I don't think I bought into that idea, just more kind of like a point, like a devil advocate point that I wanted to raise. Yeah. Oh, no, but, um, it's not a bad yeah. one. It's just one that's make, making me think. Yeah. No, so <laughs> so <laughs> back to your question. Yeah. yeah, I definitely think that pseudodelifts are easier to recover from, easier to train, uh, and you can kind of do more of. Like, what I found is that with most lifters, if they're going to do like a, say, say you've got a certain program or a certain template of kind of training that you might run, mm. uh, especially if the, if the training is more reps, like say sets of four to eight on a deadlift, then the sumo deadlifter can generally do like the same amount of reps and sets. Like let's say doing a three by six or something. The sumo deadlifter can generally do that th- three by six, like, three to 4% of your one RM heavier than the conventional or maybe even up to 5% heavier than the conventional deadlifter, especially for rep work. Mm. Um, not only, ca- not only they can do it, but it's more productive to do it. And similarly, like if you take that logic in reverse, conventional deadlifters kind of have to train lighter. Like, yeah, there are, there are a lot of examples of like conventional deadlifters who, uh, who or not just even conventional deadlifters, but anyone who does conventional deadlifting in their training, they just get more productive work done like lighter. Like you generally need to train at lower RPEs for conventional to get the same amount of progress as someone who's training in the sumo deadlift. Like the sumo needs to be trained harder. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that um, like the, the sumo is genuinely less work. Like it's actually like a less work done, you know, work done equals force times distance. There's less distance. So there's less work done. So per rep, you're not doing as much systemically as we said before. So a set of like eight reps, is systemically less tiring than a set of eight reps if you did a conventional, even though it's the same amount of weight lifted if you did the same weight, even though it's the same amount of weight lifted for the same amount of reps, it's like less work. So it's just less tiring. So you can do more of it. So in order to be equally as tired in order to cause equal amounts of systemic stress, although you said systemic stress isn't the be all end all, but in order to cause the same amount of systemic stress, you might need to do your three by eight sumos five kilos heavier than if you were going to do them conventional, assuming that you're equally as strong as both. So yeah, I definitely think they need to be trained differently. Um, and uh, yeah, I definitely think that conventional deadlifts need to be trained at generally lower RPEs and or lower percentages and or lower reps in general. Yeah, I'm not sure whether this observation holds true for sumo, um, but something that happens in conventional deadlifts, and it comes back to what I was saying about why I don't really think it's back strength that limits a lot of people. Um, what happens in conventional deadlifts with fatigue is that you get like this increasing compensation where, you know, your hip extensors get fatigued. And so it gets harder and harder to actually maintain a neutral spine because your first sort of 
your first reaction subconsciously to hip extensor fatigue is to round a little bit at the back and reduce hip demands. And so you do more and more spinal work and it sort of increases. I don't know if it increases linearly or not, but as you approach failure, the amount of work that your back is actually being put through increases more and more and yeah. more. So rep by rep. And then, so when you do a lot of deadlifts close, like conventional deadlifts close to failure, you get a lot of that spinal spinal fatigue. And then when you have sort of fatigue through, yeah, your back extensors, particularly in the lower back, you sort of just have like, it takes a while to recover, but it reduces your ability to get through other work. And so it's, it's recovery cost is higher and the specificity of the movement I'm not even sure about this part, but the specificity of the movement to what you want is reduced. And the reason I say I'm not sure about that is because I also think, think there is a case to be made for strengthening your ability to get out of a slightly compromised position, particularly as a conventional deadlifter, but you want to avoid it most of the time. Like you want to be strong enough to avoid that compromised position and also strong enough to get, get out into of it. it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, I think it's interesting what you said about the increased recovery cost of doing bad conventional deadlifts, like as you get to fatigue, like that's something that I experienced mm-hmm. that when I do my, when I do hard conventional deadlift sets, like if I'm especially high reps, you know, sets of five, six, eight reps of seven don't exist. Um, <laughs> then my erectors get real tired and sore and then my squats go to shit. Yeah. Like there have been, yeah, I've had a number of instances where I've had to squat like two days after hard ish conventional deadlifts. And then my squats are either terrible or like, I fail, you know, like there was one time, there's one real classic example that I remember I was going to do a set of five at 200 and I failed my first rep. Like I literally failed a single and even yeah. in every warm up, I was like, fuck, my back is so sore. It wasn't like pain as in, you know, injury. It was just my erectors were actually just so domsy that even like a bit of lumbar flexion or extension, like unloaded was causing pain. And then mm. I fell 200 for one when I was supposed to do it for five. So whereas that's never happened in sumo. Like I can do like mega hard sumos. Like I could do like, you know, three sets of six to failure on a sumo deadlift at like 260. And the next day I could probably squat almost as well as normal. Like, you know. Yeah. No, I think I've had that exact same experience. And I think I even spoke about it on the podcast semi-recently where it was like the first time I ever deadlifted, it was like 250 or 255 for three. Um, it was like a massive PB at the time. I did that and that was on a Wednesday. And then on the Friday I had to squat and it was a, it was a set of three to five at 200. And it was meant to be about RPE eight. And at that time, I think I'd done, I'd done two ten for five or something. So it was like going to be a moderately hard set, but if Pretty I did dribble, it was all right. Yeah. And I, I did the same thing. I hit the hole with two hundred and first rep, just lost it. And I was sitting in Willoughby Fitness first, and I had to like dump <laughs> the bar over my head onto the safeties and just cause an absolute scene. But it was for the exact same reason. I literally had no drive left in my, um, you know, through my back. It was like the second I had to do any grinding, I was just gone. And it was that postural fatigue. Yeah. So yeah, basically, so I, I agree. So. Yeah, cool. Well, that's good then. Well, we've agreed on one thing and disagreed on one thing each. So we're, we're tied. Who's, <laughs> who's going to win? Who's going to win this podcast? <laughs> well, no, then, then let's sort of approach this from the other perspective though. Um, so you were saying that the sumo deadlifters can and probably should do a little bit more work. Um, but there are also the sumo deadlifters who are stronger in sumo for one reason or another. But like you said, it flares up their hips. And so oftentimes those are people who end up doing a lot of their training in a conventional stance or have to pull sumo off blocks quite a lot. Um, and so I'm not necessarily sure that I buy the idea that it's more recoverable intrinsically. It's just, it may on a, on like an individual basis allow you to do more work. But if that, yeah, if that work causes you, like I said, extra systemic stress, so like flare ups in your hips or your back has to do extra work then I'm not really sure it's a positive. Yeah, I'd agree. Yeah. It's, 
it's like I said at the very start of everything is that you've got to take all those factors into consideration. It's not as simple as this one I'm stronger with, so that's what I'm going to do, or this one doesn't hurt, so that's what I'm going to do. Like there's a number of kind of factors that you've got to take into consideration. And my recommendation for most people is, assuming that you don't have a competition that you're training for specifically in the, in the short term, is to do both. You know, like I would say a lot of people, quite a lot of people will deadlift maybe twice a week and you can do one day as sumo and one day as conventional mm. and kind of try to train at similar intensities for both once you've built up your sumo, assuming that you're a current conventional deadlifter. Train at similar intensities for both, kind of you know, take note of how you feel and how hard they are and then you know, how you recover from those things and all those types of factors and then you can make a bit more of an informed decision rather than reading an article on the internet that says because you've got short arms, you should do sumo. Yeah, or listening to a podcast where two blokes tell you what to do. Yeah, well, what I'm telling you to do is to figure it out yourself. <laughs> so, yeah. Take some responsibility. Send me, yeah, so send me $99 to jcackyatlive.com on uh, PayPal, thanks. <laughs> um, actually, I want to use you as an example. When we started training together, one of the things you told me was that you'd found that um, you needed to do a lot of conventional work to drive your sumo up. And you also said that you felt that building your back strength was particularly beneficial. Um, what thought process led you to feel that way? And have you observed, like, can you observe similar things in other lifters? Are there tells? Uh, I guess the thing that leads me to this, like that logic is simply how I started sumo deadlifting. Like, as I said before, like I'd never done sumo deadlifts before, but I trained conventional for four or five, maybe six years. So like you can take, you can assume that like I'm a complete sumo noob. But then eight weeks later, I did 235 for three. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, like, my logic is that, well, the reason I was able to deadlift 235 for three sumo is because I just had been conventionaling for five years or six years, you know? So, for me, it was, like, fair to reason. Although, it's ironic because at the start of the podcast, I said sumos and conventionals are completely different lifts. While mm. they are completely different lifts for the context of, like, programming, I guess, the fact is that they're quite similar at the same time. So my logic is that, well, if I was able to deadlift, you know, essentially what was an elite lift, like 235 for three at 66, having only trained for eight weeks, then maybe if I just didn't do conventional sumo, train conventional and got my conventional stronger, then when I go back to sumo, I'll be stronger at sumo again. Mm. I mean, and like, although that was five years ago now, it's still kind of something that's, I guess, was so profound in my training experience that I still, like, I still buy into that a lot. Whether or not it's actually true or not, it's hard for me to say, obviously. And I've had periods where I've done no conventionals and obviously my sumo still gone up, like training sumo. So what the answer is, I don't know. In terms of my experience with lifters that I've coached, um, yeah, pretty much all my sumo lifters will do conventional deadlifts for extended periods, especially in off-season style blocks, especially for like more reps and stuff. Like I don't really program a sumo deadlifter, conventional deadlifts for like anything less than three reps. Yeah, they're usually doing five to eight. Because I just think, like I said before at the start, the conventional deadlift is such a superior exercise for general strength development. Like anyone that wants to become stronger, not necessarily a power lifter, but if you just want to get stronger, you should probably be doing conventional deadlifts. And um, yeah, like we said before, conventional deadlifts drives your sumo quite well. So for me personally, I think doing conventionals helps. Do I think I can get stronger without doing conventional? Yeah, probably also. But I think that's more a case of the fact that I'm, pushing more towards uh you know top ends of my genetic potential and at that point you, you can kind of get away with or you kind of have to do less non-specific work whereas at the start of my training career doing non-specific work was the best way to see progress yeah i actually suspect that in your case a lot of what happened is it was a bit like the way you described adductor strength for the sumo where like 
you need a requisite amount of strength in all yeah. of the muscles, even the ones that aren't prime movers. And the conventional addresses lots of them really elegantly for the sumo. Like it gets your hammy stronger, it gets your glutes stronger, it gets your back stronger, it gets your grip and upper back stronger, all that stuff. And so I suspect that what you did was you trained a lift that was perhaps not as well suited to you, really hard. You built up good general strength in all of them. And then you went to a lift where you had all the requisite pieces built up quite strong and you just put yourself in a more advantageous position and you were realizing those gains. But yeah. I, I also suspect that, like you said, as your career goes on, you'll have to do more and more sumo or at least sumo-specific work to continue to get stronger because you've probably gotten a lot of the general gains from that conventional pattern. Yeah, like getting my conventional up is not going to help my sumo as much now because I've already got that prerequisite strength. Yeah, but I, like, I also suspect that as the qualities that make your sumo stronger go up, your conventional will come up just less. Like I bet if your sumo went up 10 kilos, your conventional will probably go up five. And I reckon yeah. if your conventional went up 10, it might only drive your sumo up two or three now. Okay, yeah. That's, but that's my hunch. I, I won't know until I get you 10 kilos stronger at sumo, hopefully. Yeah, hopefully one day. Maybe. Yeah, I think I think like one of the pieces of logic I use, which is a very barbaric and simple way of thinking of things, is that yeah, I, I really like this idea of prerequisite strength for stuff. And then I go, you know, like for example, like one that I use a lot is uh, the Bulgarian split squat relative to your actual squat. So like I've got a guy, for example, there's a guy in the gym. Shout out Alan. Uh, I don't know if he's going to listen to this, but his uh, best squat's two fifty, and he'd never really done much uh, split work, split squat work or anything. So then I go to do Bulgarian split squats. Um, and I think week one, I had to maybe do like seven and a half kills each hand or something for sets of 12. And like I said, oh, seven and a half. And he's like, bro, that's fucking like no weight at all. Like, yeah, like that's appalling. Just, just, it's appalling, right? And he's yeah. like, and I said to him, just do it. And he did the seven and a half for three sets of 12. And he was like in agony. Like he was crippled for like two days. Mm. And I said to him, think of it like this way, right? You can squat 250, but you can't even split squat your body weight plus 15 kilos, essentially, right? Like to me, that's like a massive strength discrepancy. And if you can get your Bulgarian split squat up, that might like, you know, elicit gains in a, in an area that will, you know, ultimately be realized when you do your, your regular, like, you know, your competition style squat. Like another way I like to kind of think of it is if you, uh, if you met a lifter and, uh, and they, their best bench press was 200, I bet you, like I bet you a billion dollars that their close grip bench press is more than like 120. You know what I mean? Like you can't yeah. bench press 200 without having a close grip of 120. So by that logic, if you can get your close grip up, then your, your normal bench will go up as well. Like I've never met anyone whose who's weaker lifts or weaker variants are going to be stronger than their stronger variants because by definition, they're the weaker variant. So yeah. while, like, while what you said is, like, I, I agree with what you said before about, like, say for me, if I got my conventional up 10, then that might only see 2.5 kilo increase in my actual deadlift. But like, I still, yeah, I don't know what, I, I don't know what my point is to this all, I guess, but that well, it I comes buy into this idea of there being prerequisite amounts of strength in order for you to realize more specific expressions of strength later. Yeah, I think that comes to two points. We're way off sumos now, which is good for yeah. me. Yeah. Um, but I think it comes <laughs> <laughs> it comes back to two points. Traumatized. Traumatized. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've been so wide-eyed for like 45 minutes now, just cringing. Um, no, it comes back to two points. One is the idea of transference, which is that like, mm. you know, and that's that... Transference is the idea that, that increase in one, one ability, say. So in this instance, lifting strength in one lift um, 
depending on how much sort of overlap in demands there is with another task, we'll also drive increases in that because like, mm-hmm. you know, every task that you do is the sum of a number of smaller ones. And so things that are more similar to each other tends to have more transfer. Of course. So, you yeah. know, like a sumo, like, sorry, a conventional deadlift and a conventional block pull are very similar increase in one. You should expect a reasonable degree of transfer in others. And then as you get further away from that sort of continuum of similarity, similarity you also yeah. expect less transfer. Um, but you know, with something like, yeah, a close grip bench, it has similar demands to an actual competition bench in some respects. And it asks similar things of all the muscles. So you expect an increase in one to drive an increase in others. That was, that was the first concept. So it makes sense to me. Like when you say a weaker variant that stresses the same muscles, if you get it stronger, it should make it better. Um, but you also want to look for things that are high transfer activities to invest your time in most of the time. And what happens is across your training career, or at least like the general model we think about is over your training career, the amount of transfer you get from general things decreases. So the classic example is like when you've never lifted before, if you get your leg press up heaps, your squat will increase because Mm -hmm. like you just have shitty leg strength and so you get your legs better. But then once you know how to squat, you actually need to get better at squatting to get better. So there's that. Um, but then underlying the concept of transfer, and this is, this is probably a really good, good way of thinking about the split squat thing that you said, is you also, you don't just have to drive, you don't have to drive things that have direct transfer all the time, particularly in developmental blocks. You also have to look at people and say like, what sort of like skills and strengths to, does this person have to have to be like resilient enough or apt enough to do training that will get them stronger in higher transfer activities. And so for something like a split squat, like people who have horrible hip stability or really bad lateral stability, like they have shitty oblique strength, can't, you know, can't do anything with like their adductors and glute meat and stuff in sync, then they're going to be unstable and shitty at a split squat. And it stresses like their quads and glutes and things. But once like, if you improve those things, you get sort of more stability and resilience. And then suddenly they're squatting a little more stably And then they might hack a bit more squat volume or they might squat more effectively. And then longer term, you get transfer from your actual direct squat work because you've improved those sort of base skills. Does that make sense? Yeah, of course. Yeah. And I think like another important consideration on that, I know we're off topic, so we'll try to keep it short. But like another point of that is this idea of transfer that you you talked about. Like there's a school of thought that says, well, if the most specific thing you can do is the best thing you can do, why wouldn't you just do the most specific thing you can do all the time? Oh, no. We may be having some issues here. Um, oh, are you there? Oh, yeah, I'm back. It just told me my internet connection is unstable. That happens here and there. You said if the most specific thing you can do is the best thing you can do, why not just do the most specific thing all the time? Then you yeah. said. Yeah, so uh, so I guess my, my point going on from that is that the reason that you wouldn't always do the most specific thing you can do is because sometimes what you want to actually target are like the discrepancies or the, the disproportionate weaknesses that you might have. So like, let's say for example, someone's back squat is like 250 and their best pause squat is 245. You might say, and their best high bar squat, like they're literally the best they can high bar squat with the belt and knee sleeves is 200. Mm. Right? They can only do 200 for one. So you might say, well, the pause squat is more biomechanically similar to an actual squat. So the pause squat is better because it's going to have higher transfer because it's more specific. But the fact is their high bar squat is less specific, but it's also like 
it's got the most room for gains. Like it's the it's a it's a, it's an exercise that has the most disproportionate ability compared to their like you know what your target is, which is to improve their competition style squat. Mm-hmm. So similarly, like going back to the Bulgarian split squat example, it's like the Bulgarian split squat or any kind of split squat variation is obviously fairly non-specific, right? You know, it's like an asymmetrical lift, it's low load, blah blah blah. But it has to be kind of be in line with your ability, you know. So although it's non-specific, if you're really bad at it, you might actually see good results from it because bringing it up, you you get you almost get like newbie gains from doing it because you're you're so shit at it, and then you'll actually see better transfer even though it's got lower transfer. Is that coming? Well, no, no, no. This is the. I think Mike Teixeira wrote this once. He said it really brilliantly. Corresponding um, into, I don't know, go on. Um, No, Mike Teixeira wrote this, said it really well, is that specificity is just like a heuristic that we use for transfer. So it's easy to look at something and like the poor squat's a good example and say, well, superficially, it's more similar to the low bar and then you expect more transfer. But really when you're thinking, how much will this lift transfer to my ability and others? You should be thinking how elegantly does this lift address the like the weakness or like the part of my system that I want to improve. And so oftentimes when you have like a similar movement pattern, you know, because it is similar, it imposes similar demands, but really targets one or two aspects of your lift that you need to bring up, which is great. But if you have somebody who has like a glaring weakness in the quads, say, and that's why their squat is stopped, but their poor squat's relatively good, then even though the poor squat superficially looks more similar. To, to the competition squat, the high bar squat might more elegantly address that quad strength. Yeah, so it actually yeah, has more transfer in spite of not being as immediately specific because it's specific to the problem, not to the lift. Yeah, you know exactly what I mean? Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think the term specificity in a sports science context is, uh, I think I was using it synonymously with the word transfer when, yeah, that's, that's a better, better way of thinking about it. Yeah, well, I, like I'm not actually sure semantically whether like which definition covers what, but like that's probably I don't know that's probably a more global way of thinking about it. Um, yeah. Anyway, we've gotten way off topic. I want to wrap up the stuff about sumo really quickly um, <laughs> because I'm sick of it. Um, and so, so couple of couple of questions about coaching cues. Are there particular cues that you use for both, and are there any that you think are particularly useful for one and not the other? Um. Oh, that's a good question. I pretty much teach them exactly the same, like as as uh, basic as it sounds. I just teach them as very, very, very similar exercises. So for most people, when I'm teaching them sumo, they're already really good at conventional. Like it's it's uncommon for me to be teaching someone sumo if they haven't done conventional for the reasons that I've explained prior. Mm. So when they get to the so that when they get to their day one lesson of sumo, I just pretty much say to them, do this exactly like you do conventional but with a wide stance and they go, oh, okay. And then they set up and they do something stupid. Like for example, they grab the bar really narrow and they go, whoa, whoa, whoa. I said, do it exactly like conventional. So a lot of people, when they first start doing sumo, for example, will grip the bar like really narrow with their hands. Yeah. But really you should just grab the bar in the exact same spot as you'd normally do in a conventional, maybe even a little bit wider, but that's another point. So I say, I said, just grab the bar where you'd normally grab it for conventional. And then they go, oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And then they would set up and the bars over their toes. I'm like, whoa, like literally you've been with me for a year and whenever we've done conventional deadlifts, where do we start the bar? And they say midfoot. I go, just start the bar over your midfoot. Like why would you do it any differently? Just because your stance is wider. And then that kind of helps kind of reinforce the principles which, are the, which they've already learned. And then the bar starts on their shins like normal, right? The bar always starts, starts on your shins. You want to have good posture, right? You don't want to be completely rounded over. Perfect. Your grips to where it normally is. Great. You want to feel even pressure through your feet. Great. Now just lift the bar and... What do they do? The bar goes around the knee. I go, no, no. What do we? What do we always done? The bar always like scrapes your knee or scratches your leg the whole time. Slides up your legs. 
So slide the bar up your legs. And then they do that. And then all of a sudden they're doing a pretty reasonable sumo deadlift. One of the mistakes that you often see, and this is kind of what I said before, is that people try to get their hips too low because they're trying to be too upright. And what I like, so what I try to tell them is like, do it more like a conventional deadlift, do it with your higher hips. Mm. Another mistake that you often see is almost like the reverse of that is people who do their sumo deadlifts too much like a conventional, like almost stiff legged. And for those people, you've got to almost cue them. Yeah. For lack of something more eloquent, hips lower, chest higher. Like you just got to, you know, you just got to observe the position and uh, cue them into the right position. That kind of looks better as a coach, I guess. Um, in terms of like cues and stuff that are useful, each of them. Um, I can't think of anything that kind of stands out as being overly different. Some people talk about locking out your knees earlier in a sumo than a conventional, like lock out your knees aggressively, then you kind of extend through your hip. Have you kind of done that before, Will? Or? Um, I've heard people say it. I don't coach for it specifically. Um, mm. Because, yeah, like, I. yeah, I don't. Well, I'm like, I don't really know what the rationale is. I don't. I don't get why people think that would be better. I think you have more room to do it and then you can kind of just lean back into lockout. But I don't necessarily think it's better really to do that. Yeah. I think, um, yeah. So if that's something that you might've encountered before, don't do it because I don't believe in it either <laughs> is uh, my first point. The second point is probably the main difference in terms of like queuing in terms of actual, like the actual lift is in conventional. I know this is something that yeah, we both do a lot of is we kind of queue for the knees to move back as the bar leaves the floor. You know, your shins have got to move out of the way to allow the bar to move up in a straight line. Otherwise, the bar just bashes your shins. Um, whereas that's like less of a problem in sumo because obviously your shins aren't in the way of the bar. Your shins are forever behind the bar. Well, what you'll notice be. a lot of... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, in a proper stance. Your, your knees will be almost behind the bar. Your kneecap will probably be directly over the, the barbell itself in a sumo deadlift. So what you can do is like take any sumo deadlifter that's got reasonable technique and like pause a video of them doing so when the bar's on the floor and then pause the video when the bar's like just below the kneecap, like pretty much at the tibial tuberosity. And what you'll notice is that the knee angle actually hasn't changed a lot of the time. Although they might feel like they're loading through their quads and they're extending the knee, they're actually not. It was something that I found really hard because like I said before, I've always taught the sumo to be quite similar to the conventional. So similar cues and stuff. And I'll say things like push your knees back, you know, as the bar breaks the floor. But that really isn't the case. Like your knees actually don't, extend very early in a sumo deadlift they actually happen quite late so that's probably like the only major difference that i've observed so i'm just trying to wrap my head around what you just said because it's kind of true but then it's almost counterintuitive yeah yeah it is counterintuitive because the hips also don't the hips also don't really move forward far in the sumo deadlift until the bar passes yeah. the knee so i cue this the same for for conventional and sumo because when when people try and push their hip to the bar really early they basically pull their torso upright and so they pull with their back and it's yeah. ineffective yeah. so i always say like you know sort of slow to the knee then push your hip through um mm -hmm. and i do the same for sumo so i'm kind of trying to wrap my head around how the bar gets anywhere if your yeah, hip hasn't no, come forward and the knee the isn't really thing. straightening exactly right. i i find my i find it hard to wrap my head around this as well but like, yeah, do this, do this as an exercise. Like take a video of someone doing a reasonable conventional de a sumo deadlift. Pause the bar as the bar breaks the floor or just before it's broken the floor, like when the bar's at max flex. Pause the bar when the bar's just below the knee, like maybe two inches below the kneecap. And you'll notice the knees haven't extended very much at all, if at all. Like they might have a little bit, but not as much as like you'd almost expect or, or mm -hmm. as much as you want to happen in a conventional deadlift. But are the hips rising? So for the torso angle yeah, the to be maintained... 
right? Yeah, the hips rise a little bit, yeah. So, well, that's what I mean. So the hips are kind of extending in the whichever plane is directly across me, frontal plane, yeah? The hips are kind of yeah. extending almost like in that plane, which means the knee is, it's not moving back, but it's still, it's still relatively extending by virtue of the hip rising, right? Because the femur goes up. You know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that makes sense, yeah. But the knee's not moved back. And yeah, then exactly they right. all close together. Yeah, exactly right. I think that's the case. But anyway, yeah. it's just something that it's just something that I've noticed that's uh, that's quite different to the conventional. Because like in the conventional, like yeah, like I said before, we both kind of cue, push your knees back, get your shins out of the way, whereas it that's just less of a problem in sumo. Yeah, cool. If at all. All right. Um that pretty much wraps up everything that I wanted to ask you about the two. Is there any is there sort of any ending note that you would give people? who are either coaching or doing these lifts? Um, probably the only thing that we haven't really touched on is like, uh, is uh, like wearing a belt in, in both stances. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty, it's pretty common for sumo deadlifters to deadlift. Well, not, I wouldn't say common is not the right word, but it's not uncommon for sumo deadlifters to deadlift quite well without a belt. Um, I know that's something that I experience and I've seen a lot of other lifters kind of have similar experiences as well. I think a lot of people kind of wear a belt when they're doing sumo deadlift almost out of habit you know but anyone that have ever taken through sumo deadlift beltless work they almost always say like oh it feels pretty much the same like it's no it's not any harder uh without a belt whereas in conventional i feel like the belt makes a big difference like when i wear a belt conventional i feel so much stronger like i feel i've got so much more power mm, whereas that's not the case in sumo yeah and i don't i have found it hard to kind of like explain that to myself or like figure out why that is you know like one one uh, justification I, I kind of like think about is maybe because in the sumo you're more upright. So like in a conventional, you, you're more bent over. So you need a bit more pressure to stabilize your back. But I find that hard to kind of, I guess, believe. So Yeah. Well, no, I can kind of believe that because I've, again, I've got a few clients and like they do sumos really badly. Like their sumo technique is horrible and it's still as strong or stronger than their conventional, right? And those few clients also happen to be people who are really poor at bracing. And Mm. so I've like, I've wondered a few times whether it's just by virtue of being a little bit more upright, they're able to sort of get away with ineffective bracing, like whether that's it, whether it's something else, I don't know. Yeah, Um, yeah. And then that makes me go, well, you know, maybe part of the reason why a lot of sumo people can do reasonably well beltless is because it's less, oh, sorry, it's more forgiving on bracing than conventional, but I don't know if that's true. It's just like me trying to reconcile my observations. Cause when I see somebody do a lift as badly as some of these people do sumo and still be stronger at it than a reasonably good looking conventional technically. Yeah. Where, where like their positioning is just as comfortable. I just wonder like how, what could it be? And that's been my thought so far. Yeah. That could very well be the case. Yeah. Um, all right. We're going to take a really quick break and then I'll come back with JP for a couple more questions. Welcome back to Weekly Weights. I'm Will Berkman, joined by John Paul. We've been talking about deadlifting, sumo versus conventional. Um, we're going to wrap it up there for today because it's been a really long chat. JP, where can people find you on the internet? Um, Instagram is probably the best bet, at 5TRONG. Uh, or you can email me. My email address is on my Instagram account. So if you're interested in coaching or you live in Melbourne and you'd like to train at a powerlifting gym with a powerlifting coach, 
Um, you can come by the Strength Fortress. We're in Maidstone, which is like 15 minutes west of Melbourne. If you don't know where it is, then it's probably too far for you. <laughs> uh, um, but yeah, that's probably like the only two ways you can kind of get in contact with me is by email or Instagram. And well, you also have a YouTube channel that people should check out. There's a few videos demonstrating some of the stuff we've spoken about. Yeah, the channel, I don't really use the channel very much, but I mean, obviously the videos are still all there and accessible and uh, still get quite a few views now and then and uh, pretty good reference point because I've yeah, got a couple of good videos there. Beautiful. All right, well, thanks so much for joining me, mate. Um, yeah, as always, I'm Will Berkman, W.BerkmanPT. Chat to you next week. Peace. Oh, wait, we're going to probably need to take a break in the middle also because I just had a can of Pepsi Max. So I'm going to need a wee eventually again.